everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Do we need a new story or a return to the old stories? This conversation, this question is one that I am hearing in many sectors of our society right now. It's not just a rhetorical question mythologists pose to each other. And I'm not really sure what the answer is in terms of alternatives, but I do know that new story or return is going to involve a reworking or a retooling of our mythological inheritance. The old stories contain traces of alternatives that I think that we need, and yet we do live in a different world. The world has changed a lot in the last two, three, four, five, six thousand years, even though human beings and human experience may have changed much less than we commonly assume. And I came across a statement by uh, Neil Gaiman that links human beings with story and with this process of change that I want to share with you as part of the introduction of this program. Gaiman says, do stories grow? Pretty obviously. Anybody who has ever heard a joke being passed on from one person to another knows that they can grow. They can change. Can stories reproduce? Well, yes, not spontaneously, obviously. They tend to need people as vectors. We are the media in which they reproduce. We are their Petri dishes. Stories grow, sometimes they shrink, and they reproduce. They inspire other stories. And, of course, if they do not change, stories die. A couple things that I really like about this comment by Gaiman One is the autonomy that he gives to stories. You sense that he sees stories as living entities in and of themselves, which is certainly the way that I see them. Stories as partners, conversation partners, if you will, in life. And the exchange between us shapes both of us. And I like this note that he ends on. Of course, if they do not change, stories die. Yeah, stories die if they don't change because they become literalized. They become fundamentalized, for lack of a better word or term. I guess I'm making that up. But you know what I mean? If we stop seeing stories as stories and appreciating the crucial role that they play for us as stories then we're in trouble. That's when the argument starts. That's when the absolutism comes in. You know, this is the conversation and the struggle that we're seeing around the world right now. The struggle between people who understand and value story as a human necessity and people who think that they have the truth as opposed to something flexible and open that is changing as we change. Stories are important because they contain our values. 
and they open our imagination to the possibility of alternatives. Anyway, in this spirit, I want to share a version of a familiar fairy tale with you today. The story is called Marukla and the Twelve Months, and this is a Slavic version of Cinderella. I, I found this story because I was tracking down stories that come from my heritage. Um, my The name Svela is Czech. And as I tell you this story, I want to invite you to consider the alternatives that it might offer to the dominant values of contemporary Western culture. Some of the things that we find being quaint or outdated in our older stories, can be pathways back into a wisdom and a view of the world, the natural world in particular, that I think we desperately need to reclaim. Let me tell you this story of Marukula and the 12 months. Once upon a time, there was a widow who had two daughters. The youngest of these daughters was named Helen, and this was the widow's own daughter. The oldest, named Marukula, was her husband's daughter from a previous marriage, and the widow loved her own daughter Helen dearly and gave her many gifts and indulged her and spoiled her as much as she could. But she really didn't love Marukula at all and especially with the demise of the husband, she felt no compulsion whatsoever to do anything for this eldest stepdaughter beyond what dignity begrudged her to. Helen lived a carefree life, went to parties, laid around all day, didn't really do anything, got whatever she wanted, and Marukula was forced to stay at home and work hard as the servant for both her stepmother and her half-sister. Now, despite this rather boring and dismal life of drudgery, Marukula was a very pleasant and sweet child, and she did her best to take care of all of the chores that she was assigned. The irony is that the sweeter that she was and the more accommodating she was, the more Helen and her stepmother hated her because as she grew up, Marukla became more and more beautiful while Helen became more and more ugly. Eventually, the widow told Marukla that she was never to leave the house ever again because she, Marukula, was so ugly that she was going to disgust their neighbors and people would never come over. And if people never came over, then Helen was never going to get a suitor and it would be all Marukula's fault if her half-sister's life was ruined. And really, and Marukula believed this because she had no mirror. However, the widow's real reason for preventing Marukula from going out was that she was way, way prettier than Helen. And this old woman knew that if any suitor saw Marukula, he would definitely choose her over her ugly and spoiled younger daughter, Helen. Well, some years passed and Helen received no suitors. 
and the widow and Helen got more and more jealous and angry of Marukala's beauty and began plotting together of a way to rid themselves of Marukala once and for all. It just so happened that that winter was the coldest winter that any living being in the village could remember. They lived in the mountains, and the mountains were piled with snow, thigh high. It was so cold that even Helen didn't leave the warm cottage to go to her usual parties, and so she got bored. And one evening, she decided to play a nasty trick on Marukala. Marukala, she said, I want you to go into the mountains and fetch me some violets. Find me some fresh violets. I want to decorate my gown with them so that I might be the prettiest. Well, my dear sister, said Marukala, um, you know, violets don't grow in the snow. Well, how dare you contradict me, said Helen. You're just lazy. You just don't want to go out and do this for me. You go out at once and find me some violets without another word, and if you don't come back with violets, I will, I will, I will kill you. And Helen and her mother pushed Marukala out into the cold night and locked the door behind her. Marukala started weeping and then slowly made her way up into the mountains to search for violets. She hadn't walked very long when she came to a campfire burning in a clearing in the woods. And when she got a little bit closer, she saw that there were 12 very grand and dignified men sitting on stones around the campfire. Three of these men were quite old and venerable with long white beards. Three of them were of middle age. Three were very young and handsome, and the other three were almost as young as she was. All of them were dressed in very fine clothes, and Marukala was immediately ashamed of how she looked in her flimsy rags, and so she hung back and observed them from a distance, but it was so cold, and she was shivering so violently that finally she collected her courage and stepped forward into the light of the campfire. Men of God, she asked, may I warm myself at your fire? I am frozen with this bitter cold. The eldest of the twelve men was sitting on a great, huge stone, much larger than any of the others, and he turned to her, and said, What brings you here, daughter? What do you seek? I'm looking for violets, said Marukala. Well, my child, said the elderly man, you know that violets don't grow in the snow of winter, right? I know, I know, she said, but I have been sent by my sister to fetch them, and if I return without violets, I am going to be killed. Please, Do you know, good shepherds, where I might find violets? The elderly man who was sitting 
at the, on the big great stone was January. And he rose and turned to one of the younger men and said, Brother March, you take the highest place. He handed the younger man his wand and changed seats. And when March took the great stone seat, he waved his wand over the fire. And the snow around them started to melt. The trees and plants around Marukala began to bud and green grass started sprouting at her feet, and suddenly that meadow around was resplendent and blue with violets. Pick some of them quickly, Marukala, urged March. Well, Marukala thanked them profusely and gathered great bunches of the flowers and hurried back down the mountain to the village. The widow and her sister were amazed to see the flowers, which were so beautiful and smelled so wonderful, the scent filled the entire house. And yet, of course, they were very suspicious of where she could have found these violets. Where did you get these? Helen asked unkindly. And of course, they had been hoping that Marukula wasn't even going to return. Well, I found them on the mountain. Just as you asked, my sister, Marukula replied. Helen took the flowers, and she kept them for herself and her mother, of course, and the two of them left Marukala then to clean the kitchen, even though she was all cold and her clothes were all wet. But this had given them an idea. And the next day, the widow called Marukala and said, Marukala, I would like to eat some strawberries. Go and fetch me some from the mountain. But, Mother, uh, strawberries do not grow in January. Marukala said. How dare you defy me? You will do as I ask without question, said the widow. You go and get me some strawberries, and if you return without them, I will kill you. And this time she was sure there was no way that Marukala was going to survive a trip up the mountain and certainly wasn't going to find any strawberries. And again, they pushed her out of the door, and crying, the young woman made her way back up to the mountain to search for strawberries. And again she came to the campfire among the trees with the twelve men arranged around it. And again she asked if she might join them and warm herself at their fire. January turned to her and said, What brings you back to us, Marukla? Now what are you looking for? I'm looking for strawberries, sir, she replied. Look around you, child. Don't you see the snow? Strawberries do not ripen in the winter time. Oh, I know, sir. But if I do not return with strawberries, my mother will surely kill me, she told them. And January rose up out of his seat and handed his wand to another one of his brothers. Brother June, he said, would you take the highest place? As June took that great stone seat and waved the wand over the fire. Once again, the cold winter snows began melting. And before long, Marukala felt the hot summer sun warming her frozen skin. Birds started singing in the trees and the ground was thick with the scent of beautiful flowers and moss and under the bushes, the little wild strawberry plants 
grew and blossomed and set forth the most succulent strawberries Marucola had ever seen. Gather them up quickly, young Marucola, said June. And she wept with joy and thanked June over and over as she gathered as many of the rich strawberries as she could. And then she ran back down the mountainside. She reached the house where her mother and her sister were already celebrating what they were sure was her unfortunate death up on that cold mountain. And they were very displeased to see Marucola again. And then their greedy eyes noticed the armfuls of ripe strawberries that she carried. And where did you find these? Did you steal them? snapped the old widow. No, mother, I found them in the forest on the mountainside, Marucola said, shivering from the cold. Well, the widow grimaced at Marucola, her evil plan, thwarted once again, and they took the strawberries and she shared them with Helen. They didn't give even one to Marucola. Those strawberries were so sweet and delicious and juicy. And Marucola had brought so many that they lasted for three days. But after the three days had passed, the widow and her daughter became hungry once more. And they re-engaged with their plan. That night, there was a terrible storm, and the wind howled terribly, awfully, down through the chimney. A blizzard began. They looked out at the window at this terrible weather and called Marucola to them again. Marucola, we're tired of the strawberries. Go and fetch us some red apples from the forest. Only the ripest ones will do. But mother and my dear sister, Helen, who ever heard of apples growing in the winter? Be off with you now. No arguing. And if you don't return with the very best apples that we have ever seen, we will certainly kill you. And they bundled Marucola out into the driving wind and snow and slammed the door shut behind her. The wind tore through her clothes. The hail bruised her skin. The snow blinded her. But eventually Marucola found her way back through the forest, and to her relief, she again found the twelve men seated around their great fire in the clearing. They were very surprised to see her. What are you looking for this time, my child, asked January. What brings you out here on the darkest night, the coldest night of the year? I'm looking for red apples. You are sorely mistaken, Marucola. You must know that red apples don't appear in the depth of winter. Oh, but I must find them. I must, she said. My mother and my sister will kill me. Please, please, good shepherds, please tell me where I can find them. January got up from his seat and strode across the circle to a brother who was only a little bit younger than him. Brother September, he said, you take the highest place. And September took the seat and the wand and waved it over the fire. And soon the trees all around burst out in the vibrant fall colors of yellow and orange and red. 
As soon as the leaves changed color, they began swirling and tossing and falling in the cold northeast wind. Marukala searched all around in the nearby forest for an apple tree, and she finally found one. It was so high up, but the apples, she could tell, were juicy and sweet. And she shook the tree, and one apple fell. And then another apple fell to the ground. That's enough, said September. Thanking September as profusely and as graciously as she could, Marukala gathered up the two apples and hurried back down to the village, where her mother and her sister were outraged to see her. The old widow snatched one of the apples from her. Why, you've only brought two. Where are the rest of them? She shouted. Oh, there are more on the mountaintop, said Marukala. Oh, you, you're so greedy, said Helen. I bet you ate the rest of them on the way back. No, my dear sister, I did not. I shook the tree and only two fell down and the shepherds would not let me take any more. Helen turned to her mother, ignoring Marukala. Mother, give me my cloak. I will go and see for myself where the apples are growing and if the shepherds tell me to stop, well, damn them, I will ignore them and gather up as many as we want. And with that, Helen put on her warm clothes and hurried out into the night. It wasn't long before Helen came upon the 12 men, that is the 12 months, sitting together by their fire in the clearing. But she did not greet them. She almost marched right past them, didn't even see them, until January rose and spoke to her. What brings you here, daughter? What do you seek? Well, it's none of your business, said Helen, and she turned up her nose at his white hair and the stones where he sat, and she dismissed them immediately as beggars, turned on her heel, and hurried off into the forest. January frowned and waved his wand over his head. The fire immediately died down, and the cold wind blew stronger and stronger. The snow swirled through the trees, and the sky got dark, and Helen stumbled around and soon became hopelessly lost in the midst of a storm on the mountain. Back home in the village, the old widow waited anxiously for her daughter's return. Hours passed, and Helen did not appear. The widow turned to Marukala and snapped, This is your doing, and when I return, you will be dead. And that said, she threw on her cloak and ran out into the snow after her daughter. Marukala waited and waited, and even prayed for the return of her stepmother and sister. But they never came back. They both froze to death on that mountainside, and Marukala inherited the farm where they had all lived. And in a short time, she met a young farmer who came to live there with her. And they had many children together, and their lives were peaceful and full of joy. A few things that I hear in this story, when I think about a return to old values, a return to old attitudes that I think we would do well to reclaim. And although we may not 
live them out and express them in the same way as people did when this story was first told. We can hold them in our hearts and use them. And one of those is the attitude towards nature. An attitude towards nature that is respectful, that views the natural world not as some landscape that we move through, but as the source of everything that we need to live. And this respect comes through in the story in the notion of cycles. Not insisting or expecting things to happen out of season. It would be really interesting, don't you think, if we emulated traditional societies and rested during the winter months, if we rested and made art and told stories and sat together. What would it be like, do you think, to go into a supermarket and not find fruits and vegetables there that shouldn't appear on your shelves at that time of year? How much would we value a strawberry? How much better would the strawberries be if they were only there? In June. And how we treat the natural world, this has become the way that we treat each other and the way that we treat ourselves. We expect endless productivity from ourselves and live in a burned out, numbed out, overwrought state a lot of the time, don't we? There's also an attitude towards servitude that I find really interesting. Now, Marukala refuses to be um, denigrated by the attitudes of her stepmother and her half-sister. And I find this interesting because when I talk to other people about what they want in life, to be in service, to be in service to others, is a deeply held desire by many of us to be in service and not to be taken advantage of or looked down upon for it. I think this is a particular challenge for women who have done and continue to do so much important work in our culture, in service to life, family, beauty, home, healing, teaching, all of these things that are essential forms of service that aren't properly respected whether or not you do them as a mother or a father or housewife or paid professional of some sort. To be of service, what would it be like if those who were of the greatest service to others were the ones that we took as our champions and role models and teachers? There's also a sense in here between this service and respect for nature and natural cycles, that those cycles, as an essential component of the natural order, dictate to us ethical behavior. In brief, that harmonizing with these larger cycles is a component of ethical behavior. Marucula flourishes her stepmother and her half-sister are killed. And along those same lines, that the source of our true beauty is beauty of spirit and character. Marucula grows up to be a beautiful young woman, but the story suggests that that's the product of her inner beauty.
Now, I just want to say one quick word about the things that she collects, the violets, the strawberries, and the apples. Those are icons of the various seasons, spring, summer, and fall. But they are also symbolic of virtues that Marukala possesses and the other two women do not. Modesty and loyalty, which are a couple of the meanings of violets in the language of flowers. Strawberries in their heart shape and red color, associated with love, but also with perfection and righteousness and fertility. You know how strawberries grow sending out runners? And the apple. The apple, one of the central symbols of the feminine, of the great goddess Mother Earth. If you cut it transversely, then the pattern that the seeds make is a pentacle, which is a symbol of the goddess. And the apple also associated with consciousness, resurrection, the supreme meaning of the apple, which is love. Now, I want to close by going back to Neil Gaiman. I found it interesting that when I started investigating this story, Gaiman apparently wrote a short story called, uh, let's see, where do I have that? October in the Chair, which features the 12 months sitting around a campfire sharing their stories. If you want to find that short story, it's in a collection called Fragile Things, Short Fictions and Wonders. And I guess this story was a brief for a book that he wrote later called The Graveyard Book, which I have not read. It's a science fiction fantasy novel for children that also won the Hugo Award for Best Novel. Looks really, really, really good. And it's about an orphaned toddler who's befriended by ghostly spirits in a graveyard based on Kipling's Jungle Book. So we have this connection with the beyond, lessons from ancestors and progenitors and also spirit forms. <laughs> so in this reworking, can you see how that is both uh, a contemporary form, but takes us back to an earlier understanding of how we're connected with the world? One last quote from Gaiman before I close. He says, we, and he means writers, decry too easily what we do as being kind of trivial, the creation of stories as being a trivial thing. But the magic of escapist fiction is that it can actually offer you a genuine escape from a bad place, and in the process of escaping, it can furnish you with armor, with knowledge, with weapons, with tools you can take back into your life to help make it better. It's a real escape. And when you come back, you come back better armed than when you left. Stories should change you. Good stories should change you. Now that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. Feel free also to share this program with others who might find interest in it. I really appreciate you spreading the word about Myth in the Mojave. And if you're finding some value here, you might consider joining the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs archived there, 
as well as free downloads of everything new I create. You also play an essential role in making future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time, and until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive.